Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, new Ontario government has cancelled a fund that was earmarked for school repairs this year. Now, this cut comes as a result of the promise to scrap the cap-and-trade system. That's where the funding for all those repairs was supposed to originate from. Uh, the fund's not going to be there anymore, so the money's not going to flow anymore. So how is this going to impact us locally with the Hamilton Board of Education? Well, let's ask the chair of the the board and Ward 5 trustee, uh, Todd White, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Todd. How are you doing today? Very well, Bill. Good morning. Did you see this coming? <laughs> There's, there's uh, a lot of unknowns at this time. Do you so, think? <laughs> I mean, we're obviously, you know, very, uh, you know, waiting patiently with with any type of announcements. But unfortunately, not the type of announcements that uh, we like, because a lot of that money um, we've already planned to use in some respects. Well, one of the problems I know that you've talked to us about uh, for many, many uh, times now, many years now, is is consistent funding. In other words, knowing that there's going to be money in certain pools. And and I know this is the previous government, and new governments have the opportunity and, and the right to change anything they want. But uh, just about every board in the, in this province right now has got to be upset by this, because as you say, you try to plan for this, and this is all part of the maintenance schedule. Uh, if there's no money for it, the maintenance doesn't get done. Well, and that's it. And our board over the past uh, probably eight years have has spent a lot of time trying to get our infrastructure under control, not to a point where it's, you know, lavish and extravagant, but to the point where we can actually manage it moving forward. And uh, we've had hundreds of millions of dollars worth of deferred maintenance and backlog, and we've planned very wisely, conservatively in terms of our budgeting to make sure in a 10-year period we're, we're at a point that is, is sustainable. But with cancelled announcements like this, you know, we could be going back to an era where we're just trying to keep our heads above water, not necessarily bringing our facilities up to at least a, a manageable state. Well, I mean, let's paint a picture here because this, I mean, dollar figures are dollar figures and people may just say, well, what's the big deal? They promised he was going to save us money and that's exactly what he's doing. But but let, let's let's put this into context of the discussions you and I have had over the last number of years now about the possible a bit, possibility of school closings, about looking at schools and just say that they're not up to snuff anymore because of the, the aging infrastructure within the school or maybe the building itself. Uh, that's basically what you're looking at doing is trying to keep these buildings that you already have uh well, workable, I guess, and, and livable and, and, you know, and functioning. And, and it's got to be awfully frustrating to understand that the money's not going to be there for that now. Well, well and that's it. And, and I would question whether it actually does save us uh, money. It might in the short term, but if you look at the state of our facilities, a lot of these, a lot of our schools have been ignored for, we're not talking, you know, five, ten years, we're talking decades without any serious influx of capital dollars. So if we start starving our, our schools, it might seem, at least in the short term, to be a cost savings, but we're going to be paying for it at some point, and it catches up with us. And you see our board, where the ministry has put in, at this point, over $200 million in the past you know, five years or so to try to get us up to speed. And uh, you know, that's really the long-term planning piece. It might seem like a lot of money in the short term, but uh, it's going to end up costing you. Uh, you know, look at examples, and you know, Sherwood on the mountain very well, for instance. Yep. It's, it's at a point where it costs more money to repair that school um, up to a, a brand new condition than it would be to rebuild it. Um, you know, how, how, what does it take to get a facility, you know, to be put in a category like that? That's a lot of uh, 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 money that hasn't been spent over the years and essentially becomes a bigger liability than if we had maintained it properly. I know that uh, in the in the Toronto media, we we got some in numbers from the Toronto District School Board, and they 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 estimate actually they were budgeting about three hundred million dollars for upkeep uh, this fiscal year. 
uh, and that money's not going to be forthcoming anymore, obviously. We're talking about $100 million overall from the uh, this fund. I know it's early days right now, early moments, really, since you got this announcement. But do you have a ballpark idea how this is going to impact your board? Well, this one uh, is probably going to be somewhere in about the $4 million range, um, but our concern is whether it stops there or not. Um, so I think the Toronto board is about $25 million short as a result. Yeah. They're also about six times our size, so the, the, the numbers are roughly equitable. Um, but $4 million is a lot of, of capital upgrades. And like I said, these aren't lavish, uh, you know, energy-saving initiatives. These are, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts that are common sense these days. For instance, you know, changing out our, our lighting for something energy efficient. You know, our boilers uh, in our schools that need replacing that are energy efficient. Um, the work has to be done anyway. So it's not as if the taxpayer saves the dollars. We need to do the work. Uh, we weren't just ripping out stuff that had good, uh, you know, lifespan left in it. So... We're still paying for it. It's just there's less funding as a result. Well, and I mean, that's that's the reality we're talking about here. We're talking about heating systems and putting in windows, not necessarily energy-efficient windows, but windows that don't leak. I mean, uh, we've heard stories, and, and I know you certainly have as a trustee, about some kids that actually have to put coats on in the wintertime in the classroom. And these are some of the older schools, and there are some problems with this. And basically, uh, I guess you and every other board are asking the questions right now, how are we going to get this work done? Well, and that's it. If you saw our, our energy bills as well, <laughs> you would think that this would be a no-brainer. Um, our energy, and, and obviously the cost of energy in the province has gone up. So you're trying to combat this um, with some of these proactive measures. But like I said, we're going to end up paying for it in, in future repairs um, or through other means or in the long term, higher energy bills. So one way or another, you know, one thing that we constantly say, and you said it just in your opening, which is we need some type of concrete long-term planning. We can't you know, on a year-to-year basis, wait to see whether, you know, funding's coming or not. We have an inventory of over 100 schools. If we're going to plan those facilities over the long term, we need to have a little bit better direction than, you know, what's coming a couple months from now. Or, in other words, or in this case, uh, (laughs) go back in time and erase what had already been promised. There's a, a couple of different ways this is going to impact you. Obviously, we're going to talk about future projects and things that you wanted to have done. But you've already budgeted this year for, for a lot of this, haven't you? Well, absolutely. So we've already put aside our dollars for revitalization. And uh, we have quite a bit of plans uh, in the works for both our elementary and secondary schools. Once we finish an accommodation review and decide which schools are remaining, uh, we're putting serious dollars into those schools to get them up to benchmarks. And those are minimum ministry benchmarks. And we think all schools uh, should be at least at that level. So all of those dollars over the past or the next roughly eight years um, we've put aside um, based on a number of assumptions. We have planned for the worst, um, but we could be obviously proven wrong if we continue on this track. Um, but the numbers so far, we've actually come in under budget. Um, but the reason why we've put the dollars aside is that we know that with the market, the cost of construction, obviously the lack of grants from the ministry, uh, we could be in a position where, where we can't complete our work. Just uh, for, for the record now, what's the directive you actually got from, from the government on this? Have they told you to cease and desist with all work right now, or are you allowed to continue with work that's already been contracted out? So so anything that would have gone under that grant um, in terms of energy savings, uh, any contract signed prior to July 3rd, um, they would honor or at least look at on a case-by-case basis. Um, but anything signed after that um, is, is a no-go. So in other words, don't sign any contracts um, at this point because uh, the funding won't be there. 
So while we made plans and we have obviously, you know, the budget for the next year, as we start to look at what projects we're going to start uh, working on next as we RFP those, we might have to reconsider now um, either the amount of projects we're able to tackle this year and extend them over a longer period, or obviously on the on the flip side, perhaps cancel projects if uh, unfortunately the money's not there. Is there a plan B? Is there a contingency fund, something you can dip into? Well, well, this is it. I mean, we obviously as a board can't generate our own revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, the only real means that we have would be property sales. And I think we were just chatting about that a couple of weeks ago around how contentious that is when a board sells property, green space, for instance, and the difficulties it puts the city in and others. So we really can't generate revenue in an easy way as a school board. So we rely on those ministry grants and we rely on that level of consistency. So without it, we're just being kind of dragged along doing the best we can. And, and I must say, we've done a really good job over the past couple of years, but it, it's dependent on continued funding. And if we get back to a time where it's just cut, 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 um, then obviously we're not going to be able to complete complete our plans and we'd be put back in that position where we're just trying to keep our heads above water. Well, we've seen that, obviously. Yeah, you're right. The debate and the discussion you and I had about the Ancaster uh, High School properties and, and the concern that uh, Councillor Ferguson had about that and other people in the community uh, but, I mean, what other options do you have at this stage? I mean, you've got these things that need to be fixed. Some of these schools need windows. They need new heating systems. That's uh, that's going to, you know, you're going to have to sell an awful lot of chocolate-covered almonds to make this up. I mean, you know, what other options do you have at this stage? Well, well, and that's it. And, and we looked at the Ancaster area. We estimated um, the influx of dollars going into Ancaster after those reviews. It's roughly about $35 million to date. Uh, and that's mon- money largely dependent on ministry grants. Some of it is our, our property sales, but uh, uh, we really need any of those resources and, and revenue streams as much as possible. And that's why we know property sales don't last forever. There's obviously a finite number of properties we own. Once they're sold, there is no revenue to be made. Uh, so you have to use those dollars very, very wisely because there's no more once uh, once that money's spent. And that's why we plan to use what we project over the next five to eight years so we can at least get ourselves in a position that we can uh, manage our existing facilities at that time. Did you get any inkling at all from the government that maybe there will be a funding source identified somewhere down the road for this sort of stuff, or is it just, sorry, this game's over? Uh, more of the latter. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah, no, I, we haven't received any real signal in terms of, uh, of future funding. So usually we rely on two main capital grants that come up every year. Um, usually one in the summer, usually the other in the winter. Um, we haven't received any indication when the next one's coming up. We we don't project it's going to even be this calendar year. Uh, we'd probably be looking at some point in 2019 until the next grant opportunity might open up, and we have no clue at this point what the criteria may be and uh, uh, what we may put forward. Now, what are your options? I mean, can you can you petition the government? Can you, you know, uh, I mean, you know, you, there are numbers you can show them right now to say, look, this is work that needs to be done. And I mean, we're simply talking about the Hamilton board. This is going to impact just about every board in the province, I would think. Well, well and that's it. I mean, my main focus, I think, right now uh, would be on the existing promises that we've already made as a, as a board. So, for instance, we have nine new schools that we're building. We have another three or four major capital additions to schools. Uh, we need to be able to finish those projects. Um, in terms of looking to future projects, you know that, that's another discussion. But at this point, if we can maintain what's already been promised, 
uh, I think that's critical because that's the expectation that we set in our communities. So I want to make sure that we're able to get the shovels in the ground. As we know, Henderson is out for tender right now. Hopefully get that project on its way in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have two projects out in Flamborough, uh, and there's another in Ancaster and uh, uh, I think Stony Creek uh, over at Eastdale at the same time. So there's about five major projects we need to get shovels in the ground this year. And uh, we're hoping for, for no tricks or games along that way. Uh, we need those tenders signed, and we need to get on with that work. And we have probably another five big tenders to go out next year. So, and these are all promises that, that the previous government has made announcements for new schools. So we're really relying on that level of consistency. So if this trend keeps up, um, we're, we're certainly watching very closely. And as you asked earlier, there really isn't a plan B because we don't have that ability to generate revenue. At this stage, I mean, I can understand the conundrum. I mean, you know, when when a government makes a commitment and you budget for it and say, okay, this is the work we're going to do, and then halfway through the budget year, I mean, it was only April that they announced this money, and now all of a sudden here we are in July and they're saying, no, you're not going to get the money after all. It really puts every school board in the lurch right now. And and it does beg the question. I mean, I'm not trying to get into any, you know, worst-case scenario syndrome here, but, the, you know, what else is coming down the road? I mean, that that's a legitimate question at this stage. Well, and then that's it. And I think really, you know, we need that level of consistency. There, there's areas of the city that we haven't uh, uh, reviewed and, and unfortunately haven't committed dollars to, whether it's our dollars or the province's money. Um, that, and, that, and that's my main concern as well. So East Mountain, West Mountain, and Dundas still have some reviews uh, to come. Um, but uh, we're not putting big dollars into those areas until we know what the future may look like. So I gave the example of Ancaster getting $35 million uh, in, in its, uh, you know, half a dozen schools. Uh, when you look at East Mountain or West Mountain, you know, that number is closer to <laughs> less than a million because uh, we haven't done that work yet. So if there's a pause, you know, to me, there's an equity issue. We need to make sure that we treat each, each area of our city fairly. And if the dollars don't come in, you're going to have some areas that, you know, because they were first out of the gate, if they got the dollars and the other ones are left to, to wait. So we really need to make sure our planning is equitable and make sure that, you know, all schools are being treated fairly. Well, and, and the people that are listening right now who have kids or grandkids or whatever that, that are attending some of these older schools, whether it's Prince of Wales or Armstrong or any number of other ones, understand uh, they need only go in there once, a, you know, a, a, every couple of weeks to pick their kids up to understand uh, the, the the condition of some of these schools. I mean, they're old buildings; they're iconic buildings, and they look lovely. But they talk, it takes an awful lot of money to maintain those buildings. Well, well, and that's it. And then the dollars we're putting in, um, we're not putting in. Um, you know, we're not doing staff rooms and you know uh, hallways and amenities that that really don't have an impact on students. We've chosen to focus our revitalization on the big ticket items so the ones that have a direct impact on students so we're doing gymnasiums we're doing sports fields science labs learning commons uh we're doing uh you know that that type of work which really affect every student in a school um and, and based on whatever programming we're focusing on the arts you know everything so it's really a program uh, benefit to students it's not just a shiny paint or you know new windows necessarily as well Obviously, we're looking at those high energy needs uh, at the same time. But our main goal is to make sure programming and the impact on students is, is equitable between schools because this is where you start to have uh, have or have not schools. And we've had that in the past where you have brand new schools in one area, you have others that have fewer amenities. So our efforts really have been making sure all of our schools are, are at a, a reasonable uh, benchmark. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not the case right now. 
Todd White from the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, well, nobody said it was going to be easy, Todd. Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, stay in touch. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, interesting uh, on Twitter here from a Saman who says, hey, whatever happened to all those uh, PC candidates in the last election that signed the Fix Our Schools pledge? Good question. Uh, we maybe should ask the government that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the concerns that we've had over the last couple of days is a story we brought to you a week or so ago, and that was uh, one of the uh, Ford government's early pronouncements that they were going to uh, cut off the OHIP Plus program that the previous government had instituted. Uh, this is the program, of course, that uh, uh, suggested that uh, there were going to be free prescription drugs for uh, people under age 25. And uh, they said, no, they're not going to do that. It was on a trial basis, and it was supposed to be renewed, but it's not going to be now. So the, the question we have, I guess, that a lot of people are looking at right now is what is the best way now to make sure that Ontarians receive the medications that they require? Joining us to talk about this is Helen Stevenson, former uh, Deputy Minister of Health and Executive Officer of Ontario Drug Programs. Helen, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you. Were you caught off guard by the government announcement? Um, I was caught off guard by how quickly it was done, yeah. not necessarily the announcement. <laughs> uh, so talk to us about the ramifications, because I'm sure you've heard some of the debating points on this, Helen, and some are saying, oh, this is actually a really good move. It's, there was a redundant program, and they don't really need this. Everybody's going to be covered. Everything's going to be just fine. Uh, can we can we take that to the bank? Yeah. So it, it is a, so maybe I'll just give you sort of one quick explanation. So yeah, the please. program, as you, you know, outlined at the beginning, was was really covering prescription drugs for Ontarians who were under 25. So that means that people that are covered under their parents' employee benefit plan, um, of which there would be hundreds of thousands of people that are covered under their parents' um, you know, health plan at their company, those people were now going to be covered by the government, even though they already had coverage. And then people that didn't have any coverage would now be covered by the government. So, I mean, essentially, there was a lot of there were a lot of questions with respect to, you know, why is the government now assuming the cost for people that were already covered? Um, and, you know, it would have been a large cost. And essentially what the announcement did is it said, okay, we're actually now not going to pay for those. So people who were covered by their parents' plan will now need to continue or will need to be, um, you know, continue to access that coverage. But they are still covering people that didn't, don't have access to either government coverage or private coverage, meaning an employer plan. So those people will continue to be covered. So let's talk about the logistics of this now, that, uh, you know, to, to follow through on this. Are we, are we okay on this? Is everybody still going to be legitimately, uh, you know, covered and feel free about this? Because, I mean, I, I know that previous to, to the program, to the, to the policy that we didn't affect last uh, government, uh, let's face it, I mean, we say, well, if you're, you know, kids especially, if you're, you can still be covered under your parents' plan, that's on the proviso that your parents have a plan. Not all of them do. Correct. And so for those that don't have a plan, they'll continue to be covered under OHIP+. Plus. So it, it does look as if everybody's going to be all right on this. It does look like it. It does. And arguably, you know, covering sort of the decision last year to assume the cost for people that were already getting coverage, you know, there was a lot of debate, a lot of comments um, about that in terms of like, why should we taxpayers now be paying for people that were covered under their parents' plans? 
Um, and so that's really the big change that was made is, you know, so, so the, the, the concept that they talk about is that the government will be the last payer. So in other words, if you already have a plan, such as your parents' plan, that's the, that is what will pay for your prescriptions first. If you don't have a plan, then the government will pick you up, i.e. they're the last payer because you don't have another payer. When we talked with uh, representatives of the uh, the insurance industry, uh, I guess it was a day or two after this uh, this announcement was made, uh, they told us that there's actually a, a, a protocol that's in place right now that if somebody is falling between the cracks, that they will ensure, they will talk to the, whichever government agency it is to try to ensure that these people are covered. Is are those Now, just calling on your experience as, as a deputy minister of health, is that your experience, that they'll actually work with the government to try to make sure that everybody's going to be all right here? Um, I was also assistant deputy minister. Sadly, yeah. I wasn't deputy minister. But anyway, um, I just ele- I just elevated you. Thank you. I appreciate the promotion. <laughs> <laughs> but um, mind you, un- unfortunately, your pay has been frozen because oh, of the previous sorry. announcement. You know that. Yeah, that's okay. But, but I digress. <laughs> um, so it's when I was there that we didn't have a lot of interaction with the insurance companies. So we we did in the context of some big reforms and changes to the system we were making, but we did not with respect to looking for coverage. So I I mean, that may well be. They may well have a, a mechanism to do that. Back when I was in government, that wasn't so prevalent. Why then uh, would the government, and I'm going back to the previous government now, actually even institute a program? I mean, the way you're describing this and the way you're describing the, the, the way the system is working now, it, it does seem as if it was a redundancy. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to, you know, that kind of policy would have been developed, um, you know, amongst the politicians and with help from the bureaucracy. So I'm not, I wouldn't have been privy to the reasons yeah. why. I suspect part of the reason could have been, is that the first step now towards, again, a national, sort of a one big pharmacare program where everyone's on the same same plan? It's possible that's what they were thinking. You know, but but I I wouldn't have been privy to their decision. But that's a federal government jurisdiction. I understand that you know healthcare obviously it falls down to the provinces. But uh, I, as we articulated back when this was happening a few weeks ago, the your idea about the national pharmacare program that's something that's really been in the works since about 1964. It was promised to us back then uh, when when our Medicaid system was developed, and they said, yeah, we're we not going to do that right now, but we're going to get to it. And we still don't have it, uh, but it, I, it would, I think, probably be a, a somewhat problematic for this to happen on a piecemeal basis, province by province, if that's what they're shooting for. I think, I think that's a fair, very fair comment. Absolutely. So, you know, obviously, you know, maybe you know, give the government full marks. Although some are simply going to suggest that, well, this was a political decision more than anything else. The governments love to be able to hand goodies out just before an election. But I, I, I'm just wondering about the common sense of this now and uh, the fact that obviously it's rolled back. And, and it wasn't really canceled because it was only for a period of time anyway. And they said, we'll review it after that. And the government apparently has reviewed it and said, we're not going to do this anymore. But it sounds as if everybody's going to be okay. Yes, everybody's going to be okay. And I have to say, as a taxpayer, I actually think it's you know fiscally responsible. I think it was, I was probably part of the group that questioned, why are we now covering people that already had coverage? <laughs> Um, and so I think it's a very fiscally responsible move. But yes, yes, from everything, all indications are that everybody's going to be okay. People who right, have coverage in their parents will get it. People that don't have any coverage will get it through the government. Uh, just a question, uh, and, and maybe I'll, I'll again ask you to fall back on your experience in the ministry, uh, because invariably, I know this is for people 25 and under. This is what the program was all about. But there's always concern about seniors and, and that care. That That's not being touched at all. That's still okay, isn't it? 
Correct. So the Ontario Drug Benefit Program that covers people over 65 is, is the same as it has been. All right. Helen, thank you so much for the time today and for the clarification. I really appreciate it's a it. pleasure. Nice to, nice to speak to you, Bill. Good to have you on thank the you. program, too. Helen Stevenson, of course, uh, former Assistant Deputy Minister of Health and the Executive Officer of the Ontario Public Drugs Program. Uh, just some clarification on that, because there seem to be a lot of, of, of well, speculation about just what the implications were going to be with that announcement. But uh, it sounds as if everything is going to be all right and people are still going to get covered. And if you don't have coverage through the family, uh, then you're still going to be able to get the uh, the medications and it's going to be covered by the government. So, uh, by the way, the estimate I saw about this this morning indicated that uh, the uh, bill for this, had the, uh, the this program continued, would have been about $600 million. So that's, you know, Mr. Ford, Premier Ford, suggesting he wanted to save money and cut expenses, and he's certainly taking a big chunk out of it by uh, not in, uh, continuing that program. It's a great day today in Thailand, a great day right around the world, of course, as we find out that uh, all of the soccer team and the coaches have been successfully rescued from the uh, cave situation in Thailand. Uh, Yesterday, Greg Moore was with us. He's the Northeast Coordinator for the National Cave Rescue Mission. We wanted to touch base with Greg again uh, in light of the the news that uh, things have finally been set up here and, uh, and cleared up. Greg, thank you so much for jumping in again today. Really appreciate the time. I'm glad I could be here, Bill. Uh, good to talk to you again. Yeah, and and a great news story. I got to ask you right up front. We you know when you and I talked yesterday. I think they had rescued about eight, and there was still a number of kids, and and obviously the coaches still to go. Uh, it seemed to me as if the, the 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 operation went faster today than yesterday. Did you get that impression? Yeah, I saw several reports that uh, things went faster. Actually, the second time around when they got the uh, uh, second set of four out, and then today even faster. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, at this point, they've gone through the evolutions multiple times. They know where the slow points are and perhaps how to speed those up. So uh, fortunately, they gained a lot of experience as they went through this and were able to move much faster. So I, 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 don't, I don't want to call yesterday as a dry run, but the, obviously, the, you know, they, they would have articulated at that point, okay, here's where the rough spots are. The other element that I think you talked to us about yesterday is they actually moved the, uh, the, the kids that were remaining in the cave, they moved them up to a, what they thought was going to be a safer point. I, I'm sure it was only a matter of a couple of hundred meters, but uh, I guess any distance they can actually move a little closer to the, to the, to the end game here is going to be beneficial to them. Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, you know, we we tell folks in our rescues a lot of times. You know, the closer you can get to the entrance, even if it's just you know moving slowly, the faster we can get you out when uh, the time comes. So, any movement that they were able to make in the last twenty four hours certainly would have helped them in uh, today's uh, exercise. It's uh, the, it's amazing to me, and the, the reports we've heard anyway. I mean, all these all the people that were in the cave obviously are going to be, t- be taken to hospital for evaluation, but it seems as if they're in relatively good health. Is that surprising to you? Uh, not entirely. Um, I mean, it, there are going to be some long-term health uh, concerns that they're going to be looking at. Um, I was reading one article. There's a fungal disease known as histoplasmosis that sometimes can be found in caves. So they'll be monitoring for that. But, you know, fortunately, these were all, you know, young kids in the uh, kind of prime of their health and Basically, you know, they sat and stayed in one spot, so there wasn't much opportunity for any, you know, traumatic injury um, other than just, you know, being scared and cold. So I'm very hopeful that, uh, you know, we'll start hearing about them being released from the hospital the uh, next several days. Talk to us a little bit about the team that was involved in this. I know you touched on it yesterday. I mean, you're well acquainted with, with processes and situations like this. 
But uh, I mean, these were these were these were obviously they were cave rescuers. They were uh, former Navy SEALs. I mean, there was there was obviously an aqua element to this too because of the flooding that had occurred like this, and 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 the coordination that has to go into place to to have an operation like this be as effective as this one was. Yeah, and I I think that cannot be overemphasized is. A lot of this really comes down to the coordination. Uh, in any cave rescue operation, you often are bringing in team members from outside the area. For example, even though I'm based in New York, um, I happen to be in uh, the Tennessee, Alabama area for two different uh, operations and got brought in just because I was in the area. Here in the U.S., and uh, I believe Canada does something similar. We have something called the instant command system. But, you know, fortunately, we all speak the same language. In Thailand, they had the added complication of you know, cavers and divers from around the world uh, speaking in multiple of languages. So besides the coordination, they also had to coordinate uh, the language between the divers and everybody like that, you know, between the English and uh, uh, native-speaking uh, Thailand divers. Uh, and obviously that the language is one aspect of this, but obviously coordinating the efforts, who's going to do what, obviously has to be a big part of that. I mean, this this was a very intricate operation. You had those who were probably experienced in cave rescue, I would think, Greg, but at the same time, you had uh, some of the divers that probably hadn't done a whole lot of this stuff, and this is a new environment for them. And uh, it, it's remarkably uh, impressive, really, how well they and how well coordinated they all worked on this. It, it really is. Uh, you touched upon a, a great point there, you know, Cave divers are used to working in uh, th- these sort of conditions, very tight, narrow passages. And I think we talked yesterday that, you know, the Thai Navy SEAL divers, and I believe there were some other SEAL divers from Australia, are not necessarily equipped to work in cave passages, but they obviously picked up the skill sets very quickly and were able to uh, commingle their uh, skills and uh, resources uh, effectively. And then, of course, all the other resources. You know, there were literally... I believe in yesterday's operation, over 100 people in the cave, uh, most of them not divers, but simply support folks, carrying equipment, making sure the pumps for the water uh, continued to run, probably bringing food and air tanks as deep in as they could so that the divers, when they got to the water, uh, could take advantage of them staged inside the cave. And, and we talked about some of the hazards in this, and, uh, you know, as we've seen some of the pictures now with the, the rescue operation completed, uh, some of the video from this, and it's, it's really remarkable. And, and you touched on this yesterday, that uh, uh, this is not just a matter of, okay, you go underwater for a little bit and just carry out through the cave. Uh, there, there, there were jagged rocks above them as, as they were going through there, so they had to be cognizant of that. Uh, I mean, that could rip a, a, an airline, could injure people significantly. And we were told that the, one of the pinch points, I guess, one of the significant pinch points on the way out of here, it was only a 15-inch uh, gap that they had to crawl through to get into this. I mean, this, that's pretty challenging. It's extremely challenging. Uh, you know, we're used to seeing in the movies, you know, divers have the tanks on their back and like that. And cave divers generally don't have that luxury. Often they will do what's called a side mount setup where they have tanks um, on either side of their waist. But even in this case, apparently it was so tight that they were removing the tanks and pushing them in front of them and then following the, uh, the tanks through. And that's extremely challenging for an experienced diver. And the fact that they were able to get, you know, the 12 boys and the coach through this uh, safely and effectively, I think is nothing short of amazing, shows the degree of training that they had and the degree of confidence that they built up with the uh, boys and coach that they rescued. What's it like for the divers in, in a situation like this? It's got to be awfully gratifying. I mean, to, you know, I don't want to go into the old cliche of, hey, it's Miller time now, but I mean, the, the, you know, the, the ten- intensity that they have gone through with this operation over the last little while, it's got to be it's got to be tough to unwind. You can't just walk away and say, well, that's that for the day. You know, that, let's move on to the next job. There's There's got to be a period here of decompression uh, psychologically for these guys. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot that's going to be go, going through them. Uh, one of the things that we often tell folks after rescue is go take a nap. And it sounds kind of cliche, but the truth is often you've been working uh, with adrenaline running through your system and you lose track of exactly how tired you are. So I, I think you're right. It's not Miller time just yet. They're probably, quite honestly, once they're getting out of the cave, uh, finding a cotton, falling asleep and trying to catch up on sleep. And then over the next couple of days, they'll get together with their buddies, uh, talk about what happened, probably uh, share a few beers among them, and uh, start to decompress that way. But I suspect right now a lot of them are just coming off that adrenaline high and trying to uh, get a little sleep in there before they uh, can uh, relax. Well, they're the real heroes in this whole story, and it's, a, it's just a remarkable story and a, and a fabulous outcome to see that everybody got rescued, everybody appears to be okay, and and we can all move on from this. Greg, it's been fabulous and, and so helpful to have your input into this. Thanks so much again for the time today. Great. No problem. I'm glad I could help, and have a good day. You too. Thanks a lot. Greg Moore, Northeast Coordinator with the National Cave Rescue Mission. And uh, as you, if you haven't heard, the good news is, of course, everybody from the cave down in Thailand has now been rescued. The coaches are out. The players are out. And uh, everybody seems to be okay, although there could be some lingering infections, as uh, Greg already alluded to. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An interesting weekend over in the UK. Uh, We all know about the Brexit deal, of course, and the referendum that happened some time ago, where uh, the uh, majority of people in that referendum uh, decided to exit the European Union. And uh, they were told at the time by those that were advocating for this, it's just going to be easy peasy, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll just say this is what we want, and the EU will agree to it, and, and we'll all live happily ever after. Well, it's not, not going swimmingly. There are a couple of resignations and a lot of very uh, concerned people that uh, are supporting Brexit now that are wondering just what's the fuck doing now, the wheels falling off the Joining us to talk about this is Jeff Semple, European Bureau Chief with Global News. Jeff, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you back today. Great to be back with you, Bill. What's happening over here? I mean, <laughs> this was supposed <laughs> to be all smiles and chuckles, and yeah, this is going to be easy. we got Boris Johnson running this thing and, and David Davis, and it's all going to... Uh, they had a meeting over the weekend, as I understand it, where they were trying to chart a path for this, and uh, I guess it didn't go well. No, it didn't, Bill. And uh, despite the fact that we were hearing positive noises coming out of that meeting, certainly in the hours after it wrapped up, as you as you already mentioned, it's been now more than two years since that referendum vote. And ever since then, Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, has been saying over and over, Brexit means Brexit. But it's still unclear two years out what exactly Brexit will look like. And in fact, Theresa May, until Friday last week, was still trying to get her own government, her own cabinet to agree on the type of Brexit that they wanted. On on her, They have the so-called Brexiteers in her party, uh, people like Boris Johnson, the former, now former, British yeah. Foreign Secretary, who had been co- pushing for a so-called hard Brexit. They want a complete, clear departure from the European Union. They want to leave and close the door on their way out. But others in Theresa May's cabinet want a softer Brexit. They want continued access to the EU single market, for example. So on Friday, Theresa May got her team together at a private retreat and she announced what she thought was an agreed compromise that included among other things some tariff-free trade for certain goods but and she actually planned on Monday yesterday to come in front of her parliament and present this blueprint but instead on Sunday night her Brexit secretary David Davis who was in charge of the Brexit negotiations announced his resignation on principle that he thought that she Theresa May was giving the EU too much and then yesterday the big bombshell 
Boris Johnson, who I mentioned, the now former British Foreign Secretary. Boris Johnson is a very popular figure in this country. He was really the, the flamboyant face of the Vote Leave Brexit campaign, has often been touted as a possible successor to Theresa May if, she, if and when she loses her prime ministerial office. So suddenly you have these two big players resigning, refusing to take part in the Brexit process. That has sparked speculation that there might actually be some sort of leadership contest. It's still not clear whether Boris Johnson might want to take a run for Theresa May's job. And of course, uh, Bill, at stake here is much more than the British government, much more than Theresa May's job. But it's it's Brexit itself at stake here because we now have a, a power struggle between very powerful people at the top of the British government both sides promoting and advocating for two very different versions of what Brexit should look like. But there's really no surprise here, Jeffrey. Is it about the hardline position by Davis and by Boris Johnson? I mean, Theresa May had to know that going in. Yeah, well, she certainly did. And in fact, you know, we, we I think many voters got the impression that Theresa May was sort of in line with them that she had been talking a pretty tough line yeah. she had she has never moved on the fact that she says she wants an end to the free flow of of movement that you know one of the one of the hallmarks of the European Union is the free flow of goods and people so you know you can work and live in any EU country you want well Theresa May has said unequivocally from the beginning that that was going to end and she had been taking a pretty hard line but I think you know in recent months as the negotiations have started warming up a bit here and it's worth noting that she's already running out of time in those negotiations Brexit expected to officially take effect in less than a year in March in 2019 but I think as the negotiations began Theresa May came up against some the, the tough reality and some difficult questions. I mean, a big one was what to do about Northern Ireland, for example. Theresa May, it's worth remembering, it has a very small minority government in British Parliament, and that minority government is propped up by a political party in Northern Ireland that is steadfastly opposed, in steadfastly against any kind of hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. And that has become a serious issue that Theresa May has had to find a way to navigate. So that is part of the reason why she's tried to come up with a bit of a compromise here. I don't think that she's surprised by their positions, by the positions of, of David Davis and and Boris Johnson, but I think what she, you know, she, at the, on one hand, she's trying to appease them while also trying to appease the sort of softer Brexiteers within her own party. Both sides potentially, you know, calling for her head, depending on what she decided to do here. And on Friday, it looked like she'd won them all over with this compromise that has suddenly created yet another political uproar in this country on the same week, by the way, that they're preparing to play host to U.S. President Donald Trump, who arrives here after that NATO meeting on Thursday. Well, those meetings all go smoothly. You know how it is when Trump shows up, Jeff. Everything will be just fine, right? Uh, but <laughs> as, as if she doesn't have enough problems right now to deal with. So, and, and we understand that. And the, the the Ireland situation obviously is why she had to put a little water in her wine here. But but having anticipated the, that these guys are going to be upset about this, you have to wonder how, just how their position is going to be. And I guess with what's happened over the last 48 hours, uh, I wanted to get your sense and what you're feeling about people and their attitude towards Brexit. I mean, it was a very close referendum vote, and there's an awful lot of people that are still saying, look, at, can, can we find an exit ramp out of this? Are, is, is, is the prime minister still dedicated to this to try to make this happen? Yeah, very much so. And uh, to be perfectly frank, it's very difficult to see how how you know uh, these 
Remainers will would find a way to turn this around. I mean, I think Brexit is all but inevitable at this point because Theresa May has remained steadfastly in favor of it, despite the fact that she did campaign for the Remain side, of course, though quietly. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think the consensus seems to be, and it's interesting, Bill, when you, even when you see public opinion polls in the United Kingdom, even those, some of those who opposed Brexit, who voted to stay part of the European Union, appear to have kind of reconciled with the reality that this is going to happen. It's that old British cliche, keep calm and carry on. So while it was the vote itself, the referendum a couple of years ago was very close. Now, when you look at opinion polls, you tend to see maybe around 65% or so of Britons who believe that we should just get on with it and that Brexit should happen, though many of them are in favor of a softer Brexit, as I say, leaving the European Union while also keeping close ties to the world's largest trading bloc. At this point, there's still speculation about what Boris Johnson might do. He has resigned. We haven't officially heard from him in any kind of interview uh, besides his resignation letter, which he came down quite hard on the British Prime Minister and basically said, I quoting here that the Brexit dream is dying. But if he were to decide to launch a leadership challenge, that could make things very interesting over here. As I say, he's a very popular figure, polarizing figure, but a popular one. And if he decided to try and challenge Theresa May, well, then that would be very difficult to predict. All it would take is 48 members of her own Conservative Party to force a vote of confidence in her leadership. And if that vote happens, it's it's difficult to predict. I think the political pundits are saying that it's likely Theresa May would win that vote, but she might have a tougher time if someone like Boris Johnson was suddenly standing up and you know challenging her for that position so i but i think you know from checking the temperature over the past 24 hours or so bill the consensus seems to be that theresa may has will probably come out of this still the british prime minister and some are even suggesting that the resignations of people by like boris johnson and david davis will now make it easier to govern by consensus she no longer has these high profile rebels in her own cabinet if you like and she can now move forward with this you know this consensus this softer version of Brexit uh, with a common rule book, as she calls it. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, as you say, it's it's an unpredictable environment, certainly politically, and made even more unpredictable when you add the visit by someone like President Donald Trump. Jeff, do you get the sense that uh, the, the remaining people in her caucus and the Conservative caucus are, are, are the moderates uh, when it comes to Brexit, not the hardliners like Johnson and Davis? Well, it's, I mean, her, the Conservative Party, and this has been sort of one of the biggest challenges for her after taking over at number 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister's office, in the wake of the Brexit uh, referendum, was that the Conservative Party is very split on Brexit. And that was part of the reason why David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, felt he had to call this referendum in the first place, really just to appease Brexiteers within his own party. But I think, yeah, on the whole, um, it, there aren't i mean it's it's a, it's a pretty even split but i think you do tend to have as you say a pretty solid number of of conservative mp's who represent let's call it the middle ground where they are in favor of brexit but they are in favor of a soft brexit and so you know you've got that party within the party <laughs> going up against the hard Brexiteers who are led by the Boris Johnsons, by the David Davis. I think that the very fact that Theresa May has survived up till this point tells you that she's got the support not only for her leadership, but also for this brand of Brexit, the idea that she's going to have to find some sort of compromise here to try and have their cake and eat it too. And of course, 
none of this has actually been negotiated yet with the European Union. And of course, that's supposed to be the, that's of course the negotiation that really counts. And as Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party leader, the opposition leader in the UK said yesterday in the House of Commons, how can Theresa May be expected to negotiate effectively with 27 other EU member states when she can't negotiate effectively with her own cabinet? And that is a criticism that we're hearing over and over again here in the UK, not only from politicians, but also from members of the British public. Um, so Theresa May has her work cut up for her still because, you know, it, it appears that she may have survived this, that she may have gotten her own party on side and seen resignations from people who, who opposed her. But Bill, really, the hard work is just beginning now because she has to take this version of Brexit and present it towards the European Union and try and get some deal done. The uh, initial timeline that we were being told was that they were hoping to have it mostly hashed out by October. That's looking, of course, increasingly re unrealistic now. Now they're talking about December. But Brexit becomes Brexit officially on March 29th. 2019. So the clock is ticking and time is running out. Yeah, I know David Davis made those comments as he, as he was exiting uh, from uh, the deal. He said, you know, like, it's already been watered down and he, he realizes, and I think you've made a legitimate point here, Jeff, that once they start having negotiations with, uh, with the EU, uh, they're going to ask for more concessions in this whole situation. I mean, you know, Prime Minister May's biggest dilemma right now is to try to get us through the Parliament, but even if she does, there's no guarantee this is going to be accepted. And you've got to know that uh, they're going to play hardball with them because Angela Merkel already said that that they're going to they don't want to make this easy because they don't want to give any of the other EU nations the opportunity or the idea that hey you we can do that too yeah, well, that's right. Exactly. I mean, deterrence is a big part of the European Union strategy, to be sure, particularly when you have other, you know, rumblings in other European Union states with growing anti-EU sentiment, particularly in Italy, for example, with leaders there now opposing the European Union and populist sort of uprisings in various EU countries. So, I mean, yeah, deterrence is obviously on the mind of someone like Angela Merkel. They don't want to make this easy for the United Kingdom, but also, I mean, they want to try and avoid the what is a very realistic prospect of the U United Kingdom leaving the European Union without a deal. And I think, you know, for even, you know, for everybody, that that is one of these sort of worst case scenarios that is becoming increasingly realistic. In that case, it's believed that they would just go back to WTO, the World Trade Organization rules by default. Um, and that would, you know, really set things back in terms of trade and could be devastating to economy to the economy, not only of the United Kingdom, but for economies across the European Union. Uh, we have actually built though, but just by the way, heard um, just in the last hour or so from Michel Barnier, who is the EU's go-to negotiator. He's leading negotiations from the European side, who did, you know, make a positive, was making some positive noises this morning, you know, sure, certainly much, much appreciated by Theresa May, you can be sure, saying that as much as 80% of the Brexit deal has already been agreed, according to him. And that is quite interesting to hear from Michel Barnier, who has been taking a very tough line up till now, but maybe potentially throwing a bit of a lifeline for Theresa May this morning, saying that as much as 80% of the deal has been agreed, it represents quite a change in narrative from him, and you know gives a bit of hope for people on Theresa May's side that they might actually be able to get this deal signed with the version that she's been promoting. Um, but as you say, I mean, this is, you know, Theresa May will be taking this deal to European un Union leaders who are in no mood to make any concessions 
concessions, so she's hoped that she's you know can win the big fight, despite the fact that it's taken her this long to even get a blueprint that she can take comfortably from her own government to the European Union. Jeff, just a quick point. We mentioned uh, just a couple of seconds ago, of course, the NATO meeting gets underway in Brussels tomorrow. Uh, does Boris Johnson's resignation have any impact on the U.K.'s uh, position and, and presence there? I mean, a foreign secretary, is a, I would assume, is a guy who's going to be at that table. Yeah, well, that's right. And uh, I mean, I'm actually not sure what to, I believe Boris Johnson was expected to be attending that meeting. And uh, you never no, know what Boris do replaced. You? No, that's right. <laughs> well, and I don't think Boris ever misses an opportunity uh, <laughs> to make some news. But I think, uh, yeah, he's been quickly replaced. Jeremy Hunt, who was the former health secretary here in the United Kingdom, who has been uh, very loyal to Theresa May over the past couple of years. Jeremy Hunt, who also, by the way, in addition to Theresa May, also voted to remain part of the European Union, is now the Foreign Secretary. And this is another interesting storyline that's emerging with all of these resignations, Bill, is that Theresa May is, is sort of starting to refill some of these posts with Remainers, with people who voted to remain, though Jeremy Hunt, like Theresa May, has come on side with the Brexiteers insofar as he now believes that Brexit is a good thing, that it should happen. But of course, as we've been saying, you know, Brexit means Brexit, but what does Brexit actually mean? And I think Jeremy Hunt would be promote one of those promoting a softer version of Brexit. So it will be Jeremy Hunt as British Foreign Secretary on what will be, I guess, his second, third day on the job showing up in Brussels at that NATO summit, which is expected to be difficult enough without all of this. And uh, President Trump, by the way, um, was asked what he thought about all of this just as he, uh, before he got on the plane to head this way to Europe. Uh, he said that he, he talked about the turmoil in the UK. He talked about the fact that actually he's He's friends. He likes Boris Johnson. He said he's a great guy. He's always liked Boris. And, you know, tr uh, Donald Trump has had testy relations of late with Theresa May. Um, so all of that will play into the, you know, the backdrop of this NATO summit. And often these NATO summits, you know, they used to be sort of just rubber stamping sessions, didn't they? And, you know, pretty straightforward and people would get together and they would all talk about unity. Uh, this one, you know, will be one to watch, to be sure. Not only the meeting over the next couple of days, but then immediately following that, Donald Trump will arrive here in the United Kingdom where he's expected to be met by thousands, if not tens of thousands, of protesters here in the British capital. More plot twists than Coronation Street, isn't it? <laughs> Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, House of Cards, as somebody said. It seems uh, that way, yeah. I'm sure well, Netflix that's, that's, is, uh, that's, that came from the U.K., and they're, they're certainly living it. Jeff, thanks as always. We'll uh, watch for your updates on Global National tonight at 6.30. Appreciate the time today. Great. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.